Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. In the final few weeks of 1944, I was bundled up and taken at about 6 o'clock in the morning, as I recall, down to the corner of Main Street and Highway 91 in St. George, Utah, to the Big Hand Cafe. That's where the Greyhound bus stopped in our little town. And that morning, my Uncle Herb, all of 17 years of age, was leaving for San Diego, California, wherever that was. Apparently, in 1944, there was a war on somewhere, and he was now deemed old enough to go and do his part. He had joined the United States Navy, and we were there to say goodbye. Actually, I had a rather formal part in this bus stop program. I had practiced and was now supposed to sing in my four-year-old solo voice a little ditty that celebrated sailors with lyrics beginning, bell-bottom trousers, coat of navy blue, she loves her sailor boy and he loves her too. I could go on. (laughs) However, as with other assignments later in my life, I panicked in the public eye and went stone silent. I refused to sing a note. But my silence seemed to work out all right because my mother and my grandmother and my aunts were all crying and nobody cared very much whether I sang or not. I asked why they were crying, and they said it was because Uncle Herb was going to war. I asked how long will he be gone, not knowing then that some of the boys were never coming home. Through her tears, my grandmother said, He'll be gone as long as it takes. He'll be gone for the duration of the war. Well, I had no idea whatsoever of her meaning, as long as it takes to do what, for crying out loud, which is exactly what they were doing. (laughs) And what was the duration of the war? I was totally confused and very glad I didn't sing my song. That would have only added to the confusion, and the Big Hand Cafe could never stand much confusion. As you might suppose, I've thought a lot about my grandmother's words later in my life more than I ever thought about them in my youth. Lately, they've been on my mind again, and I hope they might have some significance for you this morning. The longer I live, the more I come to realize that some things in life are very true and very permanent and very important. They are, I suppose, matters which might collectively be labeled eternal things. Now, without listing a whole catalog of those good and permanent possessions, let me say that all of them are included collectively in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Mormon told his son, in Christ there comes every good thing. So as time goes by, we ought, as a matter of personal maturity and growth in the gospel, we ought to spend more of our time, more of our time with and more of our energy to, the good things, the best things, the things that endure and bless and prevail. That is why I believe family and true friends become increasingly important the older we get. And so does knowledge, and so do simple acts of kindness and concern for the circumstances of others. Peter lists a whole handful of these virtues and calls them the divine nature, and he promises us divine power 
in possessing and sharing them. These gospel qualities and principles, as I understand them, are the most important as well as the most permanent of life's acquisitions. But there is a war going on over such personal possessions, and there will yet be a bazooka shell or two fall into your life that will prompt you to examine, carefully require you to do so, that you might ask what you really believe, that you might assume what you hold dear, and that you may ask again what you trust is of permanent worth. Now, when such difficult times come upon us, or when temptation seems all around, will we be, are we now, prepared to stand our ground and outlast that intruder? Are we equipped for combat, to stay loyal for as long as it takes, to stay true for the duration of the war? Can we hold fast to the principles and the people who truly matter eternally to us? It is, I suppose, this quality of your faith, this determination of your purpose that I wish so much to stress this morning. I am asking you to re-examine and to more clearly understand the commitment you made when you were baptized, not only into Christ's Church, but into His life and into His death and into His resurrection into all that he is and stands for in time and in eternity. Nearly 98% of this audience are baptized and confirmed members of the LDS Church. Virtually that same percentage of the men here are also ordained priesthood bearers. And many of the men and women here have already taken upon themselves the highest covenants and the holiest ordinances available in mortality, those of the Holy Temple. So surely we have as a congregation already thrust ourselves into the most serious and most eternal of issues. The war is on, and we have conspicuously enlisted. And certainly it is a war worth waging. But we are foolish, we are fatally foolish, if we believe it will be a casual or convenient thing. We are foolish if we think it will demand nothing of us. Indeed, as the chief figure... The great commander in this struggle, Christ has warned us about treating the New Testament of his body and his blood trivially. We are told emphatically not to pilfer and profane, prevaricate and fornicate, satiate ourselves in every indulgence or violation that strikes our fancy, and then suppose that we're still pretty darn good soldiers. No, not in this army not in defending the kingdom of God. More is expected than that. Much more is needed. And in a very real sense, eternity hangs in the balance. I truly believe there can be no casual Christians. For if we are not watchful and resolute, we will become in the heat of battle a Christian casualty. And each of us knows some of those. Perhaps we ourselves have at some time past been wounded. Maybe we weren't strong enough. Maybe we hadn't cared enough. Maybe we didn't stop to think. The war was somehow more dangerous than we had supposed. The temptation to transgress, to compromise, is all around us. 
And some of us, too many of us, even as members of the Church, have sometime fallen victim. We partook of Christ's flesh and blood unworthily, and we ate and drank damnation to our soul. Some of us may still be taking such transgression lightly, but at least the Master understands the significance of the side we say we have chosen. Let me just use one example. At the conclusion of his Perean ministry, Jesus and the Twelve were making their way back to Jerusalem for that last prophetically foretold week leading up to his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. In that most sober and foreboding sequence of events, the Savior, who singly and solitarily alone knew what lay ahead of him and just how difficult the final hours of his of his test would be, he was approached by the mother of his chief disciples, James and John. She rather straightforwardly asked a favor of the Son of God. She said, Command that these my two sons may sit, one on thy right hand and one on thy left, in thy kingdom. This good mother, and perhaps most of the little band who had faithfully followed Jesus, were obviously preoccupied by the dream and expectation of that time when this their Messiah would rule and reign in splendor, when, as the scripture says, the kingdom of God should immediately appear. The question was one more of ignorance than impropriety, and Christ uttered not a word of rebuke. He gently answered them as one who always considered the consequence of any commitment. You know not, he said quietly, you know not what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? That rather startling question did not seem to take James and John by surprise. Promptly and firmly they replied, We are able. And Jesus' response to them was, You shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Now, without any reference to the glory or special privilege they seem to have been seeking, this may strike one as a strange favor which the Lord was granting James and John. But he was not mocking them, offering the cup of his suffering rather than a throne in his kingdom. No, he had never been more serious. The cup and the throne were inextricably linked, and they could not be given separately. I am sure that you and I, being not only less worthy than Christ, but less worthy worthy than apostles like James and John, I'm sure we would leave such troublesome issues alone if they would only leave us alone. As a rule, we usually do not seek the bitter cup and the bloody baptism. But sometimes they seek us. The fact of the matter is God does draft men and women into the spiritual warfare of this world. And if any of us come to genuine religious faith and a conviction as a result of that, as many a drafted soldier has done, it will nevertheless be a faith and a conviction which in the first flames of the battle we did not enjoy and certainly did not expect. I'm asking this morning that we put ourselves in the place of James and John, put ourselves in the place of routinely committed, believing, faithful Latter-day Saints, and ask ourselves, if we are Christ's 
and he is ours, are we willing to stand firm forever? Are we in the church for keeps, for the duration, until it's over? Are we in it through the bitter cup, the bloody baptism, and all? And please understand that I am not asking if you can simply endure your years at BYU or serve out your term as gospel doctrine teacher. I am asking questions of a far more fundamental sort. I am asking about the purity of your heart. How cherished are our covenants? Have we, perhaps, beginning our life in the church as a result of parental insistence or geographic happenstance, have we yet thought about a life that is ultimately to be tempted and tried and purified by fire? Have we cared about our convictions enough, and are we regularly reinforcing them in a way that will help us do the right thing at the right time for the right reason, especially when it is unpopular or unprofitable or nearly unbearable to do so? Indeed, you may one day be released as the glamorous gospel doctrine teacher and be called to that much-vacated post of gospel doctrine believer and obeyer. That will test your strength. Surely our sometimes cliched expressions of testimony and latter-day privilege don't amount to much until we've had open invitation to test them in the heat of battle and have in such spiritual combat found ourselves to be faithful. We may speak glibly in those Sunday services of having the truth, or even of knowing the truth, but only one who is confronting error and conquering it, however painfully and however slowly, only that person, I believe, can proper, properly speak of loving the truth. And I believe Christ intends us someday to truly, honestly love him. The way, the truth, and the life. Tragically enough, the temptation to compromise standards or to be less valiant before God often comes from another member of the Church. Elder Grant Bangeter wrote of his experience years ago in the military shortly after he had returned from his mission. I realize, he concluded, that throughout those years I was considered different, but I never found it necessary to break my standards, to remove my garments or to apologize for being a Latter-day Saint. Then this very telling observation, I can honestly say that no non-member has ever tried to induce me to discard my LDS standards. The only people I remember trying to coerce me to abandon my principles or who ridiculed me for my standards have been non-practicing members of my own Church. What a painful observation if we were to apply it at a place like BYU where the temptation to compromise may come from a practicing—I put that in quotation marks—a practicing member of that Church. Even here, especially here, because we've been given so much here, we must be prepared to stand by principle and act on conviction, even if that seems to leave us standing alone. Remember these lines from Paradise Lost. I alone seemed in thy world erroneous to dissent from all. My sect, thou seest, now learn too late 
how few sometimes may know when thousands err. I do not think thousands err at BYU, but some do. And I believe that you'll leave here to work and to live in a world where many do, more than Milton's thousands. So my call, especially while we are in an environment that requires and expects it, my call is to live by highest principle and to stand firmly by your faith. I ask it, however difficult or lonely that may seem, even at a place as beautiful as BYU. You are tempted. Undoubtedly, you are tempted. But be strong. The cup and the throne are inextricably linked. I think perhaps so far I have made you think only of the rather obvious transgressions young Latter-day Saints face, the temptation Satan never seems to keep very subtle. But what about the gospel living that isn't so obvious and may be of a higher order still? Let me shift both the tone and the temptations just slightly and cite other examples of our Christian challenge. On the night of March 24, 1832, a dozen men stormed the Hiram, Ohio home where Joseph and Emma Smith were staying. Both were physically and emotionally spent, not only from all the travails of the young church at that time, but also because on this particular evening they had been up caring for their two adopted twins, born 11 months earlier on the same day that Emma had given birth to and then lost their own twins. Emma had gone to bed first while Joseph stayed up with the children, and then she'd arisen to take her turn, encouraging her husband to get some sleep. No sooner had he begun to doze than he heard his wife give a terrifying scream and found himself being torn from the house and very nearly being torn limb from limb. Cursing as they went, the mob who had seized him were swearing to kill Joseph if he resisted. One man grabbed him by the throat until he lost consciousness from lack of breath. He came to only to overhear part of their counsel as to whether he should be murdered. It was determined that for now he would simply be stripped naked, beaten senseless, tarred and feathered, and left to fend for himself in the bitter March night. Stripped of his clothing, fighting off fists and tar paddles on every side, and resisting a vial of some liquid, perhaps poison, which he shattered with his teeth as it was forced into his mouth, he miraculously managed to fight off the entire mob and eventually made his way back to the house. In the dim light, his wife thought the tar stains covering his body were bloodstains, and she fainted at the sight. Friends kept the entire, spent the entire night scraping and removing the tar and applying liniments to his scratched and battered body. I now quote directly from the Prophet Joseph's record. By morning I was ready to be clothed again. This being the Sabbath morning, the people assembled for meeting at the usual hour of worship, and among them came also the mobbers of the night before, and then he names them. With my flesh all scarified and defaced, I preached to the congregation as usual, and in the afternoon of the same day baptized three individuals. Now, unfortunately, the adopted twins, growing worse from the exposure and the turmoil of that night, both died the following Friday. With my flesh all scarified and defaced, I preached to the congregation as usual. To that slimy band of cowards who by Friday next will quite literally be the murderers of your children, stand there hurting from the hair of your head that was pulled and then tarred into a mat, 
hurting right down to your foot which was nearly torn off, being wrenched out of the door of your own home? Preach the gospel to that damnable bunch of sniveling reprobates? Surely this is no time to stand by principle. It is daylight now, and the odds aren't 12 to 1 anymore. Let's just conclude this Sunday service right now and go outside and finish last evening's business. It was, after all, a fairly long night for Joseph and Emma. Maybe it should be an equally short morning for this dirty dozen who've snickeringly shown up for church. But those feelings, which I have even now, just reading about that experience 150 years later, and feelings I know that would have raged in my Irish blood that morning, they mark only one difference between me and the prophet Joseph Smith. You see, a disciple of Christ, which I testify to you, Joseph Smith was and is, a disciple of Christ always has to be a disciple. The judge does not give off any time for bad behavior. A Christian always stands on principle. Even as old Holland is out there swinging a pitchfork and screaming an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, forgetting, as dispensation after dispensation have forgotten, that this only leaves everyone blind and toothless. No, the good people, the strong people, they dig down deeper and find a better way. Like Christ, they know that when it is hardest to be so is precisely the time you have to be at your best. As another confession to you, I know I could not have said at Calvary's cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not after the spitting and the cursing and the thorns and the nails. Not if they don't care or understand that this horrible price in personal pain is being paid for them. But that's just the time when the fiercest kind of integrity and loyalty to high purpose must take over. That's just the time when it matters the very most and when everything else hangs in the balance. For surely it did that day. Now you and I won't ever find ourselves on that cross. But we repeatedly find ourselves at the foot of it. And how we act there will speak volumes about what we think of Christ and his character and of his call for us to be his disciples. Yes, I'm confident our challenges will be less dramatic than a tar and feathering. Certainly they won't involve a crucifixion. And maybe they won't even be very personal matters at all. Maybe they will involve someone else, perhaps an injustice done to a neighbor, a person much less popular and privileged than yourself. In cataloging life's little battles, this may be the least attractive kind of war for you, a bitter cup you especially don't wish to drink because there seems to be so little advantage in it for you. After all, it's really someone else's problem. And like Hamlet, you may well lament that time is out of joint, O oh, cursed spite, that ever you were born to set it right. But set it right you must, for inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it 
unto me. And in times of such Donovan-like defense, it may be risky, it may even be dangerous to stand true. Martin Luther King once said, The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. The true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, and even his life for the welfare of others. In dangerous valleys and hazardous pathways, he will lift some bruised and beaten brother to a higher and more noble life. But what if in this war it is neither a neighbor nor yourself at risk, but someone desperately dearly loved by you, someone who is hurt or defamed or perhaps even taken in death? How might we prepare for that distant day when our own child or our own spouse is found in mortal danger? One marvelously gifted man, a convert to Christianity, slowly watched his wife dying of cancer. As he observed her slipping away from him with all that she had meant and all that she had given him, his newfound faith, about which he had written so much and with which he had strengthened so many others, that now began to waver. In times of such grief, C.S. Lewis wrote, one, risks, one runs the risk of asking, where is God? When you are happy, you turn to Him with gratitude and praise, and you'll be welcomed with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You might as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Yet he was there once. What can this mean? Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Those feelings of abandonment, written in the midst of a terrible grief, slowly passed and the comfort of Lewis's faith returned, stronger and purer for the test. But know what self-revelation this bitter cup, this bloody baptism had for him. In an obligation of quite a different kind than he had supposed, he now too realized that enlisting for the duration of the war is not a trivial matter. And in the heat of battle, he hadn't been so heroic as he had encouraged millions of his readers to be. You never know how much you believe anything, he confesses, until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you're merely using it to tie a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Only a real risk tests the reality of a belief. A man has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses. I'd been warned. Indeed, I had warned myself, he says. I knew we were promised suffering. That was part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accepted it. I got nothing that I hadn't agreed to. But if my house collapsed at one blow, that is because it was a house of cards. The faith which took these things into account was not an adequate faith. If I had really cared, as I thought I did care, about the sorrows of others in this world, then I would not have been so overwhelmed when my own sorrow came. I thought I trusted the rope until it mattered. 
And when it indeed mattered, I found that it wasn't strong enough. Your view of eternal life will not be very serious if nothing much is at stake, he concludes. You'll never discover how serious it is until the stakes are raised horribly high, and God has a way of raising the stakes. Sometimes only suffering can do that. So God is then something like a divine physician. A crueler man might be bribed, might grow tired of his vile sport, might have a temporary fit of mercy, as alcoholics have a temporary fit of sobriety. But suppose that what you are up against is a wonderfully skilled surgeon whose intentions are solely and absolutely good. Then the kinder and more conscientious he is, the more he cares about you, the more inexorably he will go on cutting in spite of the suffering it may cause you. And if he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been so very, very useless. So I am, you see, one of God's patients, not yet cured. I know that there are not only tears yet to be dried, but stains yet to be scoured. My sword will be made even brighter still." Close quote. God wants us to be stronger than we are, more fixed in our purpose, more certain of our commitments, eventually needing less coddling from Him, showing more willingness to shoulder some of the burden of His heavy load. In short, He wants us to be more like He is. And if you haven't noticed, some of us are not yet like that. The question then for everyone milling around the Greyhound bus depot about to report for duty, the question is, when gospel principles get unpopular or unprofitable or very, very difficult to live, will we stand by them for the duration? That is the question our experiences in Latter-day Saint life seem most determined to answer. What do we really believe? And how true are we really willing to live? As university students, bright and blessed and eager and prosperous, do we yet know what faith, specifically faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, really is, what it requires in human behavior, and what it may yet demand of us before our souls are finally saved. May I close by telling you how much I love you. and how much I care about what you become at BYU and beyond.
I think about you day and night. And I pray for your brightest and best possible future. My testimony to you this morning is that God does live, and good does triumph. This is the true and living church of the true and living Christ. And because of him and the restored gospel and the work of living prophets, including President Ezra Taft Benson, there is for each of us individually and for all of us collectively, if we stay fixed and faithful in our purpose, there is somewhere a great final moment when we will stand with the angels in the presence of God on a globe like a sea of glass and fire where all things for our glory are manifest, past, present, and future. That is a triumphant day for which I dearly long and which I earnestly pray for all of you to earn the right to be there May we, as Alma said, stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that we may be in, even until death, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.